Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers 4DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. I'm Arthi Sean, editor for The Homes Report. We're here sort of in the throes of summer. I'm enjoying a delightfully sunny day here in, uh, in the Bay Area. Um, today's show is a bit futuristic. We have two very forward-looking guests. Um, we have the Wonder Factory's founder, Joe McGambley, who's going to talk about the future of branded content. But first, we have the chief digital officer of Reuter Finn, Scott Snyder, who is going to talk to us about sort of the next frontier of technology. Um, Scott, thank you for being here today. Of course. Thanks, Archie. And you are joining us from lovely uh, East Hampton. I am today. I am. It's a lucky me. Yes, indeed. Indeed. So, Scott, you and I have, and I should point out, Scott was also one of our, um, one of our, he was part of our inaugural class of the Innovator 25, in part because I remember sitting in Scott's office and you were, Scott, you were talking about things that I didn't hear people in the industry talking about a few years ago. I mean, really, I mean, the way that um, 3D printing was really going to impact communications. I mean, the way that television memes are going to impact the way we communicate moving forward. Yeah, I know it's interesting. And in thinking, I think that was probably two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, two years later, thinking about 3D printing and how it it hasn't quite hit um, yet. And then I think of other future technologies that we're talking about now, like augmented reality, um, even Google Glass, things that make such a big splash and realizing what what kind of hits and what doesn't and why. And you look at the ad- adoption rate and at what point does something need to kind of tip. Um, so I know we had talked about augmented reality at one point um, and it's something that, that I'm interested in. You know, we have an Oculus Rift uh, at work and we'll be doing some work actually on the hardware side for a client um, and some software pilot programs around the Oculus. And the question really is in terms of the future state um, of of some ways of PR is the future state of how we're going to communicate as a society with each other. And I think that so much of it is this adoption. Um, And will there be the product out there that tips over for the home 3D printer? And will there be the product that tips over to the the augmented reality? Right. And so talking about augmented reality or virtual reality, I mean, most people will say, right, I mean, if we're at the closest to mainstream adoption that we've ever been in part because of um, Google Cardboard, you know, that's made that's made virtual technology, um, virtual reality so accessible um, via, you know, an app that can be installed on, on everyone's, you know, smartphones. So I think Wired Magazine actually called um, Cardboard like the virtual reality's gateway drug. I mean, do you think that this is really what's going to tip the scales and, and we'll see wide, wide stream, sorry, um, wider adoption? Uh, you know, I'm not sure, and I should correct myself. Obviously, it, it, you're talking about virtual reality in terms of, of cardboard, opposed to the augmented of a Google Glass and some of the iPhone apps that exist. You know, I have uh, one of the cardboard uh, on my desk at work. Um, I've seen other kind of models, and it still feels not quite practical. So, you know, um, you know, Volvo did a great, you know, I think Google Cardboard, you know, uh, VR, we can look around the car. There's been a couple of other uh, companies and brands doing things like that, but I think that. To get the immersive, so when you put the Oculus Rift on, you see the big difference right away between, say, cardboard and, and a more professional product. And you know, Samsung has um, products coming out, and there's a lot of people that do. And that immersiveness feels like the thing that could take you somewhere. Uh, the problem is that having a setup in your home or walking into, say, you know, a, a brand's online platform and using that, or their real-world platform and using that, you need the technology there. So. The experience is amazing. I'm just not quite sure how they're going to get that technology in people's hands. So I don't think it's a gateway drug yet. It's cool. I think people talk about it and they have it and they look at things um, and there's some fun games, but it doesn't it doesn't quite yet have that point of marvel, which I think it needs to. Right, and and I think you're right. I mean, we we probably aren't quite there with getting it in terms of in consumers' hands. Um, and and there is a lot of complaints that you know of that it creates sort of it causes eye strain and people feel nauseous when when they use sort of maybe some of the less professional um, uh, hardware. So uh, a, a question that that I would have though is is what I've seen is a lot of brands are using it to sort of create an experiential experience you know experiential um, uh, you know. Um, Mar- experiential marketing in in their retail outlets, for instance, I think we uh, North the, the North Face that some of the yeah. retailers, right? You can put on. Um, I believe they use Jaunt, um, but you know, you 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 put on the hardware and, and you can you know climb mountains in Yosemite. 
Um, or like the Marriott, I think they famously did. Um, oh, the Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. that was the, tele the teleporter. That yeah, was very, they, very cool. Right. And so so it's not, you don't necessarily need to, to have, consumers don't need to necessarily have the, the hardware at their disposal. They just need to be able, like when, when they check into a Marriott, they can, you know, say you're on a business trip in Chicago and it's raining and they're like, oh, you know, take a take a 15 minute um, re relaxation in, in Hawaii to, to recharge. Yeah, you see, I, I feel like that, that falls more in the disruption category than in the kind of real adaption category. Um, because you're right, those things are amazing. And, you know, the famous Oculus, you know, uh, Game of Thrones um, at the wall and South by Southwest two years ago, uh, activation they did. And I think you'll see brands using this. And it's funny, those two examples are real life examples of using the Oculus. Um, but I can't think of... I'm trying to think if there's any other technologies that really exist in the kind of consumer space like that that aren't translated to the home that have taken off. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see. I think we're in this interesting time now where more brands will use it. I think more people, more people that use it and, and feel the impact of this technology will understand the power and we'll see where it goes. I'm thinking it's still like in a really interesting place. And brands, some brands seem really interested in going and exploring and other brands feel like it's gimmicky. So... Uh, going into in a different direction, I wanted sure. to ask you um, sort of about, you know, what seems old fashioned now, right? Social networking. Uh, so Twitter, I mean, Twitter's obviously at a, at a crossroads. They have a, a new a new CEO, you know, their, their head of communications, Gabriel Stricker, recently stepped down. And, you know, I, I remember a few years ago, I think on an earnings, or, or this was pre-IPO, pre um, where their former CEO, now Dick Costello, had mentioned that, you know, they are on a charge towards a billion users. And I think at this latest count, they're just north of 300 million. And yeah. they just haven't been able to, to, to gain the widespread adoption that, um, you, know, you know, Facebook has. So, you know, what do you think that Twitter needs to do to gain more usage and, and you know, to have more, more, more activity um, in a bigger base? Sure. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I just had this conversation earlier today. Uh, of their 300 million people, I mean, I forget what the exact stat is, but such a small uh, percentage are active tweeters. And, you know, you and I have spoken about this before, about a lot of people kind of are on there retweeting and lurking or listening and um and so I, I think that you have something that started out as utility, and this is a thing not uncommon in the startup space, and I'm not a startup expert per se, but you have this great utility. It takes off organically. Um, it's then invested with a lot of money and becomes uh, a very promissory of what it's going to deliver from a business point of view. And th the real question is, is the functionality there yet to deliver the business promise? And I think that it's not quite there. Uh, I think about, um, and I've been using a lot lately of, of Snapchat, and Snapchat I got and just to check it out and see what's going on, and I realized that the chat, the Snapchat story section, is extremely powerful, and it's kind of a product um, niche that Twitter does not seem to have right now. Um, and I'm watching stories from the West Bank, from Brazil. Um, I'm I'm finding myself being drawn in uh, to these Snapchat stories in a way that I didn't think I would be, and so it's kind of acting as a curator uh, for certain segments that I don't think. Twitter is doing yet. Twitter is not quite curating at this level. So I think that they're going to have to catch up quickly and they're going to have to figure out how to, I guess, integrate technologies that make uh, and kind of a curatorial voice that make a big difference that other, other smaller channels are doing. And one of one of the things that actually so you and I have talked about that, that surprised um, myself and, and many of our readers was we have... Um, you know, the Influence 100, which is our, you know, 100 most influential in-house sure. communicators. And we did an analysis and found that only about 40% of them um, are on Twitter. And amongst those 40%, similar, it's kind of probably microcosm to, you know, the, the wider Twitter Twitter base, only a handful of them are really active users. Um, and so, I mean, you would think that this would be, you know, an ideal platform. I mean, especially you know, just if you look at it from an engagement perspective, a broadcast and an engagement perspective um, for our industry. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to why it hasn't been more widely adopted by some of the um, in-house communications leaders. And, and I, I'll give you a quote, actually, that um, uh, the WPP's founder or CEO, uh, Martin Sorrell, actually told the Holmes Report in, uh, in a Q&A that, that my, my colleague did. Um, I think his, so his quote was, Twitter itself, you could argue, has been the single most important force that has helped the PR industry. It's very powerful. So we, we have, on one hand, we have that quote. And then when you look at the numbers, you see that there isn't, it, it, it hasn't been as widely adopted by the leaders in our industry as one would think. Well, it's funny because I think that you'll see, I think that quote is accurate. And if you look at the, 
the tweets that have been impactful over the life of Twitter, um, both kind of globally and locally, that they are extremely important and that they probably drive uh, a lot of importance. Um, but then think about how hard it is to get those tweets seen. So I think that, yes, it is, it is what it is. It's behemoth of communication. And I think a lot of communication professionals feel like it's an obligatory thing to have a Twitter handle. Um, and the problem is to make any impact in such a crowded space takes so much effort. And I think that if you're a daily practitioner, that you know what the, how daunting that is. And you're doing that for your clients. And I think that it's a difficult thing to make a real dent in. Um, and the people that seem to be very successful at Twitter, you know, not including celebrities, are people that make a real concerted effort, um, which must take a, a very time-consuming, uh, must be very time-consuming to do. So I can understand it's, uh, and I agree that it's the most impactful platform right now, but at the same point, to cut through that clutter is very difficult. Yeah, I think one of the things you you and I have talked about is that you know those who are natural copywriters sort of lend themselves yeah. well to this platform, and and I've I've actually talked to people in our business that have said you know they find Twitter to be actually quite stressful because it they they feel tremendous pressure to say something quite clever in those 140 characters and um and, and to your point I mean for people that that doesn't come naturally to it can be quite time consuming and I suppose you know they there are other places they can they can put their, their those resources. Yeah, and you know, we, we've talked about this. I don't have a Twitter handle um, for good reason because I, I think I understand what it takes to do that successfully, um, and I, I have limited time, and I have to figure out what buckets to put my energy in. Mm -hmm. So on another note, um, sure. let's talk about emojis. Uh, so I, one of the things I read recently is that we've reached peak emojis, right? <laughs> I mean, we have um, so Chevrolet, right? They, used, they recently used, uh, they issued a press release that was written entirely in emoji, and then I believe they later um, released one that sort of decoded um, the emojis. And then, um, you know, Domino's, uh, they just launched sort of emoji flashcards to help sort of the, the I guess, their, their older customers sort of gain emoji literacy. And, and, and they won some, uh, they got, they were recognized at the Ken Lions recently for some of their work around, uh, you know, emojis. Sure. So, um, and then I, actually one of the things that, that I think I may have read on your blog was um, an American linguist professor at Columbia University saying, you know, that, you know, emojis are not a language on their own, but they make our thoughts more complete. And I think his exact quote was there, uh, a part of language that often gets lost in writing, the expressive and personal part, which I think there's a lot of truth to that. So what, what do you see, what role do you see emojis playing sort of in our culture and, and the way that we communicate and what brands are, are, are tapping into that well? Um, well, it's funny. First, I think it depends on how old you are. Um, in terms of where emojis fit in in your life, because, and I say that as a, as a father of a bunch of kids who use them uh, more than I use them, um, and less than, say, my parents use them. So the, there is some, I think, uh, generational adaption, um, adoption to emojis. Um, and I think that it, it goes back in some ways to that Twitter world where we are so inundated now with um, posts and status updates and emails and texts and um, just the internet, that I think that anything that can cut through and give you a little bit of a different type of communication edge is valuable. And I think emojis do that. And so it's the same way that kind of gestural navigation on your iPhone kind of cut through and people think about navigating information differently, I think people think about looking at information differently. And the rise of the infographic and the rise of video as the prominent kind of information source online, emojis fit in a nice place in that universe. So that I could be looking at a block of 100 words and that emoji is going to kind of stick out. Now, what the press release did around the car company recently, I think, again, falls into that disruption category, which was clever. And, you know, everybody loves clever and it was a good idea. Could someone do that again? Yes. Would it have the same impact? No. And nobody's going to talk about it the same way. Uh, what Domino's did with that pizza and tweeting the, that pizza emoji was kind of genius. And... Uh, that had its life and they won a lot of things for that. And does that mean it's going to translate to other brands? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you could do that again and have the same communications payback. Um, but I think what you're seeing is a visual vocabulary that people are trying to build off of. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that emojis are going to, uh, some kind of visual language is going to grow. I think people like it. Um, I like it. I think that it's going to, it somehow cuts to the point. And I think time is of the essence on the internet. And I think that more people that could communicate in a kind of a straight to timely, smart, clever way will win. So speaking of, about this, this visual vocabulary, it's a, a nice term. Um, 
it was uh, earlier this year, right? A Google PR person sent a reporter um, a GIF instead of saying no comment. And it was a think of a, of a child just sort of looking baffled by a question. And people, some people, you know, it was sort of, it was an animated GIF. It was, it was, it was quite adorable. Um, some people in our industry thought it was brilliant and thought that this, you know, was an appropriate response. Um, you know, given the nature of the question, I believe it was about it was about YouTube. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't. I don't think sure. it was like about layoffs or anything like that. Um, not that not that that's happened at Google recently. Um, and the on the flip side of that, other other I've heard other people in the industry say that oh well, it was it was much too flip of a response. It was sort of a, a degradation of our of our industry. I mean, what what was your your take on on using sort of an animated GIF as a as a response as a, as a well, PR response? Yeah, it, you know, it, it could it depends who the audience is. So I understand if someone took it as a little cheeky, mm-hmm. um, but I, I took it as kind of clever, you know. And I think again, it goes back to that world of if we're dealing with this kind of currency of communication, which involves everything from text to video and to GIFs and emojis, um, why wouldn't we communicate with each other that way? You know, it, it, it makes sense. Um, but I think that what you'll see is that context is everything, so that there is a context for using an emoji. Um, if I was communicating with my doctor and I wanted to know, you know, if he was sending me bad news and he sent me an emoji, <laughs> I would probably freak out. So I, I think context is the thing here. And in that case, I think it could go either way. It depends on the audience. That's awesome. I, I, I actually think that I would love to hear about a doctor that responds <laughs> yeah. entirely through emoji. Um, yeah. All right, well, so let's let's just go crazy in the future now. I mean, not crazy in the future because it's actually here now, but like you know, in terms of very widespread adoption. Um, and and I should caveat this by saying by crazy in the future, I mean like 12, 12 months forward looking. Yeah. Um, driverless cars, right? I mean, they're. I mean, I'm out here in Silicon Valley. I've seen them. You know, they're 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 around here. Um, but what what I think is interesting is is what how marketers are thinking about driverless cars and our marketers suddenly thinking that, all right, well, this is a new way that they can compete for your time. Um, if you're not, if you're, if you're commuting, but not, not driving. I mean, obviously that's happening now with so many more people using ride sharing services and, and, you know, obviously it's been around for ages with public transportation, but with the driverless car, is there new ways that marketers are thinking about reaching people that they haven't in the past? Yeah, you know, I think so, and I've I've been reading a lot about it, and um, it's funny, even with uh, driver cars, uh, with the technology in those cars, I've been looking into a lot about Apple's um, CarPlay, because I think that you'll see more and more marketers and brands uh, and people trying to reach you in your car, whether you're driving or not, and in driverless cars, let's say, I think they're starting to sell them in the next 12 months in California, I think, Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but um, I thought I'd read that, and so they'll be coming out and there will be people trying to get you while you're there and they'll also be trying to get your car to their restaurant they'll be trying to get your car to somehow stop at their in real life destination um but i think that the in-car experience is going to be something that gets uh kind of kicked up a notch and it also goes into kind of a a separate but related topic i've been thinking a lot about uh, ambient uh, intelligence and um, I think that was a Phillips might have coined that term uh, a decade ago. And this goes to, I just got an Amazon Echo, um, to this kind of technology that sits where you are and listens to you um, kind of all the time. And your car does that. And I think that we're going to start seeing a lot of services that build off of that. So I'll be in my car and I'll be driving. It will somehow know from my whatever my Fitbit health technology is that I need water, that I'm hungry, uh, that I need a break, that I've been sitting too long. It will communicate to my car and make that connection for me and pull off the road and say, "Okay, you got to do now, you know, eight jumping jacks and there's a, you know, a restaurant to get some water and coffee and get back on the road." So I think that all of these kind of ambient intelligence technologies will begin to map our data and, and then kind of sell us and guide us more than we realize. So I think that's kind of my futuristic think of, of how this could all come together. So, I mean, is there is there any sort of backlash that brands should be aware of? I mean, as, you know, we start to have so much of our lives, I mean, because even the scenario that you just described, I mean, where so much of our lives are being guided by, by technology. And, I mean, do you think that people have become relatively desensitized to being marketed to um, in, in that way? Or do you think brands still need to be careful? I mean, I know people use Waze and they're 
they're driving and, you know, they're suddenly marketed to that, oh, hey, look, there's a restaurant here or there's, you know, do you need to fill up yeah, your gas? Yeah, I, I, think, I think people, uh, there's some, I think, level of social contract that people understand now. When you use a certain kind of in, uh, invasive, if I could use that word, uh, technology or very personal technology, that the, there is going to be a bit of a trade-off, which is that, you know, your data will be, um, you know, fed back to something that feeds something back to you that feels kind of marketing. But I think that the companies that do this well will be, you know, as transparent as possible about that. And so they'll say, you know, here's your data and here's what we're going to do with it and here's what, you know, you're going to get out of it. I think the backlash will come when someone gets hacked and there's privacy issues and then there's security issues. I think those bleed into marketing campaigns. So if my data uh, in my car is being used to tell me where the next rest stop is or the next, you know, um, McDonald's because I'm hungry, uh, you know, that's one thing. If that gets hacked and then all of a sudden something happens to my account and, uh, you know, I, I, or something happens to my car even, I think that's when brands have to be very careful. Do you, I, one of the conversations I've had with people is they've said that, I mean, we've actually become quite desensitized as a population to hacks and to breaches. I mean, we hear about breaches and, you know, on a, on a pretty regular basis now, right? I mean, and each time it's thousands of, yeah. you know, user data, you know, ha, you know ha, were exposed. And yet people sort of just shrug and they just carry on. And I don't know if there's a sense for, oh, well, they're on it. People are going to fix it or that, oh, I don't think, you know, I haven't been affected yet. I mean, I mean, do, do you think that, because I remember initially there was this fear that security breaches would be really dangerous and detrimental to to brands that are collecting data, but we just I don't have we seen that play out. You know, I, I don't know. It's a really good question, and I found myself I think recently shrugging myself. I, it was something that I did, um, and then or I read about something, and I said, oh, I wonder if they have my credit card information. And I just found myself shrugging, thinking, oh man, everybody must have. I mean, every American's credit card information must be somewhere. Um, and then I was upset that I kind of shrugged it off. So I think that there, everybody's desensitized, and then something will happen, like the you know the Target hack or something like that, or Sony, and then people kind of get in a bit of an outrage. Um, but I, I have to think, you know, about reading just a newspaper about what's going on with, in terms of governments and China and the U.S. and a lot of these these type of kind of cyber things that we don't know about. I'm sure something will hit big time and then everybody will be up in arms and there will be kind of a reset again. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an event, there's a reset, there's an event, there's a reset. Nobody is willing to be without this technology. That's the, I think that's the key is that people are not willing to say, you know what, my security is more important than my connectivity. I, I think that's, I think you, you nailed it. I think that's people have made, I mean, they understand it's a trade-off and people have, yeah. you know, picked connectivity over security. Um, Scott, what have we not talked about? Like, what what is just burning on in, in, in your brain that you think is really exciting that we haven't talked about? Uh, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my mother yesterday at dinner said she wanted a robot. That was the thing that I thought was uh, that maybe she's ahead of the curve here on this one. Um, so I've been reading a lot about uh, some robot technology, and and that fits into kind of the the intelligence aspect. So going back to the um, what's the next level of um, uh, artificial intelligence, this kind of you know ambient intelligence. Um, how is it going to affect our lives uh, in terms of the Internet of Things, and then how will we communicate about that? And so I've been thinking about that a lot, and thinking about really the two things that I see on the horizon for say communicators is that there are platforms built on experience and platforms built on data, and that I think can translate to this kind of going to be programs around magic and programs around meaning. And so I think that all this technology needs to be laddered up to consumers and users to mean something. Um, and when we go out and communicate on behalf of our clients, it's got to be around something very special or something very meaningful. Um, and so I guess it's those connections that um, I am looking at all the time. So all of these different intelligences started to tie it back together. Um, how is the world going to connect itself into those two buckets? Now, I, I don't want to scare your mother, but uh, didn't <laughs> didn't a robot kill a worker at a Volkswagen plant in Germany? Oh wow, man! I should have I didn't realize that. Y- yeah. yeah, no, it actually did. I think it like um it like it grabbed him and crushed. I think it crushed him against some kind of metal plate or something. And I I don't know all the details, but I I, I saw the headline um, and it was a 
Yeah, it was quite. Uh, it was quite frightening. Yeah, I'm so. going to have to cancel that order of that robot. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But, but I did see the opposite, uh, which mm -hmm. was uh, I think it was a man. It might have been a Toyota uh, factory where there was a robot who got tea for people, and it was very, very bizarre and surreal. Um, but I think I think you know, take that intelligence out of the robot, and you look at that. The same sensors in that robot are in these automatic cars, um, and those sensors are going to be everywhere. And so this intelligence, this layer of intelligence. Uh, you know, Arthi, I think is the thing that is coming faster than we realize. And the data that that generates um, will be across your life and, you know, it'll make your Fitbit look like, oh, well, it's just a pedometer. So, you know, it, it's going to make it look like just a very small data point in what is this kind of world of data that you walk around with and you're going to need companies and other partners to help you make sense of that data. Well, well, well said. Um... So Scott, well, this was it was. It's always a pleasure to to touch base with you. Yeah, um, always. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, and I'm sure we'll have you back on the show to talk again about some of the interesting trends you're seeing. You're you're always you always sort of have your your pulse on on the future. So I appreciate. Uh, having oh, that's you great. Here. I would love that. Thank you. Well, enjoy 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 your your rest of the summer. Okay. Thank you. You too. Well, that was a great segment that we just had with Scott Snyder from RFI Studios. So continuing on with our forward-looking theme of this podcast, we now have the Wonder Factory's Joe McAmbly here to talk about the future of branded content. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks, Arthi. It's great to be here. And I wanted to point out that the Wonder Factory is going through a rebirth right now. It's transforming from a web development agency to one focused on branded content. Is that correct, Joe? Sure. It's been the plan since the start of the company, but... Uh... Originally, we thought we would continue doing app and site development and then move into content and make that an additional offering. But we found over the past couple of years, especially, that the, the web development business and the app business have become pretty much commoditized. Uh, what we'd like to say to each other is people stop buying wonder in those areas, uh, but they, they are starting to buy wonder where content is concerned. So that's going to be our, our only focus for the next few years. And, and I do want to give some acknowledgement to your former office space that I believe was in, in, the, in the flat iron Chelsea district. I always thought when I, when I would come that it was Lewis Carroll inspired with his secret passageways and some really sort of dreamlike, um, I, I think there was like the, the chairs were quite big and oversized and, and there was just, I think, umbrellas hanging down from, from the walls upside down. Um, but it was actually Rondell inspired. Sure. It was, we, we, we thought of it more like a, a Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory type of feel. We, um, you know, we had spent so much time before we moved into that space counseling our clients that you, you need to differentiate yourself with design, that when people first come to your website or when they first open your app, that first impression really kind of plants a seed of, of whether or not they believe you're an innovator or as creative as you, you tell the world you are. So we thought we would, you know, we had to, we had to practice what we preach. So we, we had a, a scenario where when you came off the elevator, you entered a, a small room. It was about uh, four feet deep or five feet deep in front of you, and then maybe 13 feet wide, and it was just bookshelves in front of you. And uh, there was no door. And, and in order to get into the door, you had to pull a tassel. The tassel would ring a, ring a chime or, or, or some sort of a, a piece of music. And then one of the bookshelves would slide to the side so that you could enter the office. And you know, we, we never had anybody come through that door where their mouth wasn't wide open and they were just looking around in wonder and astonishment. So we, we wanted to make sure that when you came to our office, your first impression of us, that you had to come away thinking, well, these guys think differently from anybody I've ever met and, and magical things are going to happen for me. Well, that you, you, you certainly accomplished that. I had the same. I, I had that reaction when I came came there to the, your office for the first time, and and it was truly wonder. And I um, and I hope that when the Wonder Factory, when you have your new space, that it will it will it will have that same sort of um, imagination around it. it. It will, Arthur. I'll tell you, I, I I had to have gone through that door no fewer than four thousand times over ten years, and it it never lost its magic for me. Oh, that's that. That is really good to hear. Well, I'm, I'm. Uh, well, any, well. So, on on this note, let's let's talk about how you're going to trans transfer some of this wonder from web development to to branded content. And branded content in our industry depends on who you talk to. It can mean a wide variety variety of things. And when you and I have last spoke, I mean the the future of branded content can be so much more than just editorial you know, essentially, you know, sophisticated advertorial. 
Absolutely. It's, um, you know, it, it, you think about, you know, what, what's, what's brought us to the point where content has become so important and it's, um, you know, it's, the content marketing has been around forever. People talk about the furrow, you know, the magazine that um, John Deere put out in, in 1888 or whatever year it was, or the advertorials that mobile did in, in the early seventies. And so why has content become so much more important today than it, why, why didn't we all turn to content in 1888 when, when John Deere had success? And I think that the reason is, uh, and I'll tell you, Arthur, I realize I'm getting to an answer to your question, but it's going to take a little bit of time to get there. So be patient with me if you don't mind. All right. Sure. So, so I, th I think what, what's happened today or lately is that, you know, in 2007, Apple launched the iPhone. In 2010, the iPad came out. And, you know, since, since digital began in 1994, we've all been predicting the year of mobile. And it never really happened until the iPhone launched, until the tablet came out. And, and now you're seeing the secular trend where consumers are, are shifting their behavior you know, from from TV screens even or PC screens, and they're they're using mobile devices, and and as the screens have shrunk, all that content, advertising, and editorial has been kind of mashed together within one small space. That's that has become this hugely valuable piece of real estate, um, and, and we've learned that that advertising doesn't work as well in mobile. I mean, banners don't work in mobile the way they do, say, on the PC. So that's why you know, for for the first time in history, when you look at the fact that Consumers spend more time on their mobile screen than they do on any other screens in their lives. For the first time in history, the consumers on mobile phones are pretty much unreachable to advertisers if you're not in the content space. So the reason content has become so important to us all today as opposed to 20 or 30 years ago is that consumers are unreachable unless you're creating content. And if you're going to create content for consumers, it has to be helpful and useful to them. You know, they go to magazines and they go to newspapers or they go to websites because they want to get stuff done or they want to get help. And they don't go there because they're interested in thinking about or talking about advertising. So in order to be successful in that space, you've got to be creating content that's helpful and useful. So if you're approaching branded content as, oh, I've got to create some articles, I think you're making a big mistake. Your approach has to be, I've got to be helpful and useful to people. And that can be in the form of articles, it can be in the form of videos, it can be in the form of photo galleries, but it can be in the form of anything. You know, but I think, I think branded content has become narrowly defined by a lot of people today, and I think we need to broaden our thinking into more like branded content campaigns that attack an entire purchase funnel from awareness all the way through conversion. And some of the conversations that you and I have had in the past, some of the examples that you've given about branded content, I thought was really taking it to another level of, of interactiveness with consumers, like a camera manufacturer developing sort of sponsored content that lets users take pictures online, testing various lenses and camera features, and then making it possible for these pictures to be shared socially. Or like yeah, and you know, that's a great example, and probably the the, the best example. Um, and I don't know if they did it intentionally, but you always know when you're watching a, um, a GoPro video. I mean, you, you know when you're watching a Red Bull campaign or, or extreme sports that that is probably being filmed by a GoPro camera. And, and every one of those videos that people create has become an ad for GoPro and how fantastic it is. Yeah, and I think one of the the, uh, the other examples I don't know if it was you and I that talked about it or I spoke about it with someone or you know or you know a makeup brand providing a widget that allows users to upload a photo and try various shades of makeup. I mean, this is this is when I think about the future of branded content. I don't just think of articles that are being placed because from the research that I've seen and, and Joe, tell me if you've seen differently, um, there is some amount of banner blindness that's happening with consumers on branded content, or when they see that sponsored tag. Their, their eyes just glaze over that and they just move right on to the editorial. Now, it doesn't always happen. And, 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 and I think there are really good examples of strong branded content that's been able to overcome that. And, you know, we've seen it ourselves. We've seen, you know, if the content is really strong and if it's helpful to our readers, people, people, will, people will still click through. But, but I do think that you do have an extra hurdle and you do have to be even more creative if you're, if you're producing branded content than even if you're producing regular editorial. You do, because most publishers want to make it clear that uh, the content is, is sponsored, so they're marketing as advertising. And you know, we've, we have trained people over the years to ignore advertising. 
So oftentimes putting a label on your sponsored content can, can drive people away. But I, th I think there are some really good exceptions to that. My, my favorite example, and I've written about this, is a, a, a segment that appears periodically on the Jimmy Fallon show. And it's sponsored by General Electric. So, you know, GE wants, wants the world to, to, to know that they're all about innovation and invention. And so they, they approached the Jimmy Fallon show and they said, you know, we'd like to do this segment uh, where, where we will bring kids on stage to, to showcase their inventions and, and have them interact with Jimmy Fallon. So it's a 10-minute segment. It's called GE Fallon Inventions. It's when you watch it, it doesn't feel like an ad. It feels like a normal part of the show and, and the content, it's as good, well, it's almost as good as, mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking of when, when Jimmy Fallon lip syncs with, with stars, mm -hmm. that, that's probably as good as it gets. But when you see him up on the stage interacting with kids that have, um, you know, created things like a paper airplane launcher or an iPhone that uh, can, can do an EKG uh, and, and he's up there riffing with them and joking with them, it's fantastic content. So when, when he says that we were about to do a segment that he calls GE Found Inventions, I don't think people run to the bathroom. I think the opposite happens. I think people want to stick around for that. And it's, it's good for GE. It's good for Jimmy Fallon because it's, it's great content that he's getting paid to do. But it's also great for the viewer because it's, it's, it's really fun entertainment at a time when they want to be entertained. Right. And then, and then there's also examples of brand storytelling that um, – that you know aren't that aren't necessarily distributed via either a paid you know a, a big mass media campaign. Um, I mean, the the famous one right is the, the Chipotle, the the scarecrow. Um, that was a beautiful example of brand storytelling and brand content. That my understanding of, of that of that campaign was initially there was a very modest ad buy around it, but the 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 content itself was so strong that it it really did um, sort of organically spread. Um, I, I'm trying to avoid using the word viral, of course, and, yeah, of course, um, yeah. you know, and, and also the media picked it up, right? There was that organic push too. I mean, the media was like, this is really, really good content and they, they distributed. So I think Dove, the real beauty sketches would be another example of that, right? Where those are great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a jeweler named Pandora around mother's day. They, um, I think they took seven or eight mothers, uh, lined them up in a, in, in a, in a room. And then they, they had their children and blindfolded the children. The children had to approach the group of mothers and choose their mother out of the lineup, if you will. And it's just this, this beautifully shot and endearing video where the, the kids go up and they touch the faces of the mothers and they touch the, their hands and their hairs and every now and then the jewelry. And, and you can see the mothers are crying while all this is going on or they're, you know, they're, they're worried that maybe their child will pick the wrong mother. And I think that, I think that video was shared something like, 10 or 12 million times within the, the first two weeks of, of its running. It was just fantastic. So yeah, really good content that way is, you know, you, yeah, I know you hate to use the word viral, but it's shareable at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. And so let me, let me ask you this question. You know, I've, I've heard this, um, people have said, well, the best piece of branded content ever has to be the Lego movie. So, I mean, would you consider the Lego movie to be, you know, a very like savvy piece of brand content? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely, I would. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I haven't seen the movie. I, you know, I've read all the reviews, and but my, my kids have seen it. And they know how passionate I am about branded content. And they will tell you that it's it's one of the best pieces of branded content that, that they've ever seen. Yes. And that, that is indeed a, a revenue generator. Um, if I've ever, if I've ever seen one, I think it's made about 500 million plus in, in, in the box office. Um, so, <laughs> so I, I, I think that, I think that number's right. Hopefully someone from Lego doesn't call me and say, no, you completely <laughs> underestimated how much money we made. Um, exactly. <laughs> so, cause, because I actually, I'm surprised there should be a billion dollar figure around it. Anyway, anyway, that's a, a, another conversation. Give it, yeah. Give it time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what can we do as an industry to, to get to the point where we are producing more, more Dove Real Beauty sketches, um, more Chipotle Scarecrows, um, more of, of sort of, you know, the, the, the GE, um, Jimmy Fallon partnerships, that level of that caliber of content and less of the, of the things that people are just, their eyes are glazing over or that, you know, you, videos that your people are uploading and, and, and they're you know, maybe getting a couple of hundred views. And, and I'll caveat this with, with saying that, I, you know, I talk to a lot of B2B companies and many of them will say, look, we don't need 5 million views. We just need 500 of the right people that are, per, you know, that are making purchasing decisions. Um, 
versus the 5 million. But then you see someone like a GE and, you know, and they're getting, they're getting mass, uh, you know, mass media audience with, with partnering with Jimmy Fallon. So how do you, so I guess this is actually a two-part question. One is how can we get to the point where the industry is producing that caliber of work? And then how do you counsel people about distribution and getting the right audience in front of their content? There's, there's a couple things I, I think I would, would offer to, to brands. And, and first would be, you know, just, just as we have always thought of, and, and you know, along with, with viral marketing, I think the marketing funnel has probably become a, a cliched overused term as well. But, but I, w- I would encourage marketers, think in terms of the funnel. So when GE does GE Fallon Inventions, one of their goals is to build awareness of the affiliation between GE and Invention. So of course they're going to, to use a venue like television that has a broader audience. But I, but I think if you're a marketer and you're thinking about the entire funnel, you know that as people become aware of your product and then they get interested and then they desire it and then they want to buy it, you're going to get a fall off. You're going to get some leakage out of the funnel. But your content is going also going to change as well, just as it has always changed throughout the history of marketing. You, you build awareness in different venues and interest and desire and, and, and conversion in different places. And, and I think the same is true for branded content. So think about your entire funnel and who your customers are and where they are at different points in the funnel and what their needs are, then create content that matches back to where they are in the funnel. And not just where they are in the funnel from an attention, interest, desire, action standpoint, but where they are physically in, in the world, in a magazine, on TV, or, or on the web. So that that's the first thing. Because I think too many marketers are, are, are at the encouragement of our industry are thinking of creating a few articles a month or photo galleries here and there, and they're not thinking about branded content campaigns, and I, and I wish more marketers would. So attack the funnel, know what your customers' needs are in the funnel, but think along the lines of campaigns and not individual pieces of content. That would probably be the, the first thing I would recommend. The second thing I would recommend is, and and, and this will probably sound like a big duh, um, but I think too much emphasis has been made on our industry that if that, that you will, you know, you'll do your branded content in the New York Times and you want to have the New York Times' voice or Forbes's voice or BuzzFeed's voice. And I and I think you have to be conscious of where your content is appearing and you've got to match back to what people are looking for when they're when they're in a place like BuzzFeed or when they're in Forbes. But I think more brands need to keep in mind that they have to have their own voice appear. I think the reason why you know Chipotle is so successful or why the Dove videos are so successful is because they really know what their brands are, they know what they stand for, and they know what's going to resonate with their consumers. They're not looking to customize their content for the publisher. They're looking to customize their content for the consumer and the need that the consumer is feeling at the time. So that would be the, the second thing. Emphasize your voice over the publisher voice. But keep in mind, if, if, if you're in BuzzFeed, then your voice is going to have to adapt accordingly. I understand that. But your voice has to come first. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. And I, I would think that readers would feel less duped if you if you maintained some sort of true voice that, yeah, I mean, was, was augmented slightly to fit whichever, you know, platform you were on, but was still identifiable as, you know, that's, that's definitely Dove or that's definitely Chipotle um, versus if you're reading it and you're like, wait, is this a New York Times story? Is this a branded story? And then at the end of it, you see that it's branded and you're like, oh, they tried to, they tried to, you know, pull the wool over my eyes. Right, right. I, I, I agree. There's that, but but there's also that. I, I think a lot of a lot of brands are looking to be as topical as they can, and they're ignoring the fact that oftentimes, especially where you're looking at considered purchases, that evergreen content can be really important. You know, th- this will sound like a morbid example, but I, I often wish that a brand like a, like a New York Life, for instance. Um, would produce content around, you know, what are the 25 documents that your children are going to need after you die? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a huge problem in, in this country that, that people die, nobody knows where the will is, nobody knows where this, the, 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 um, the, what do you call the box at the bank, the, the security box at the mm-hmm. bank, nobody knows, knows where the key is, um, nobody knows where your living will is or what your wishes are when you're in a hospital. All these documents are really important to, to helping your family be more successful and happier, despite the fact that you're dying, as morbid as that sounds. So that's the kind of content that a New York life could create, say, that 
you could put that on their website and it could last for 10 years. And those are, are documents that people are always going to need. So trying to be as, as topical as, as possible is important for some brands. But, but I would, would encourage more brands to think in terms of evergreen content. You're, it's, un, it's rare that your customers' needs change so dramatically from day to day or month to month such that you wouldn't want to create evergreen content that will always meet their needs for a long time. Based on that example, Joe, I'm curious to see what what the Wonder Factory will be producing as it moves into its new life as a content um, a branded content agency. Um, and I, I'm I'm really glad that you took the time today, so we could have the first of I'm sure many conversations that you and I will yeah. have on on this topic on this topic of of, of branded content. Um, and and anything anything that I didn't ask you about that you that you just wanted to to mention about branded content. Well, yeah, I think that um, it it all starts with a really solid, sound content strategy, and 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 a content strategy is is something that you want to formulate for years, not for days or weeks or months, and and so you you want a strategy that could last a couple of years, just like a brand strategy could last a couple of years. You wanna you wanna tie it like a publisher might to an editorial calendar. And you want to look at the seasonality of your business. You want to look at the seasonality of the needs of your customers. You want to plan well in advance for the kinds of content you're going to create to meet those customer needs. You want to be conscious of the fact that different content takes different amounts of time to create. So you, you, you want to build in the, the right um, workflow as you're creating content. So, you know, at the Home Street Porter or, or any kind of credible publisher, you're planning months and years in advance of the kinds of content that you want to create and you're tying it to an editorial calendar and you're assigning it to the right people and you're conscious that con good content takes time to create. You're measuring the success of everything. You're revising the content you're creating based on the success. So I would, I would encourage brands to approach branded content like a publisher you know, with that kind of long-term strategy and editorial calendar and workflow consciousness but never forget their customers and their needs and, and, and the importance of their own brand voice. Well, Sounds I, like I'm plugging Forbes there, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Brand voice. Yeah. Well, you know, right, it's, right. it's funny. That's a whole other conversation we could have because I've heard such mixed things about, um, about, you know, I mean, while Ford was, I mean, Forbes, Forbes was certainly a pioneer in this space. I mean, really, I mean, early, early on, um, I think they were one of the first platforms to do this. Right. Um, but since then, I think some people have come back and said, well, it's kind of sullied the brand a little bit, or we don't, every time we're on Forbes, we, you know, immediately kind of assume that we're reading sponsored content. Um, because not only did they add the sponsored content model, right, but they also changed, um, how, like, I mean, just in terms of how they're, editorial operated i think um yeah yeah at the same time so yeah i, I think sometimes you're, you're not always sure that it's a forbes journalist that's creating the content and, and despite the fact that it's labeled contributor you're not always sure of the quality of the contributor i i would say though by and large what i've seen at forbes i, I think a lot of the content is really good you can't deny that their con contributor model has generated many more page views and a lot more advertising revenue for them um, so, but, but of course, everybody's going to have growth pains and, and, mm -hmm. and, and there, there's a this slippery slope that we all have to watch out for. And I, I, I think that they've, they've done some great things and they've, they've made some mistakes, but overall, I think they do a pretty good job. Yeah, no, I have to, I have to agree that they have, and, and they certainly sort of opened a door that, you know, has been, you know, been replicated by pretty much every most major, um, media companies as well. So, well, um, yeah, well, Arthur, there's one, if I have to say this is one other thing I notice on, on Forbes is, you know, when, when you look at their, their brand voice content that, that either a contributor or, or they are creating for brands or brands are creating themselves, it's, um, the brand really does have their voice shine through and there's not a lot of other stuff surrounding the content that, that screws it up. I think sometimes though, when you look at the Forbes editorial content, and say the outbrain modules that they're serving up that show, you know, at the end of a serious business article, you're seeing a bloated tummy because mm -hmm. of some kind of pharmaceutical product that's being advertised. I actually think that the the look and feel um, and the voice that comes through in brand voice is, is is being probably better protected at Forbes than some of the editorial content that I've seen. So. Again, it's it's um, every publisher has to do what they they need to do to survive. But I I worry more about the editorial side of Forbes and less about the brand voice side. 
That's a really good point, actually. And, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I, too, find it jarring when I, when I read a, a, a very serious article, whether it's a business article or even like a political article. And then, and then I scroll down to the bottom and I see something like, yeah, like a, a, in a you know, a, a protruding belly or, or, you know, something that's, um, that just doesn't fit within the context of the, of the article. And, and you're right, because of the way that brand voice has been designed, um, you don't have the, those outbrain modules that sort of push in promoted content from around the web. Um, and you, it's just, it's just sort of, you know, sandboxed to only be that brand's own voice. So that's a, that's a good observation. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry, just to, to pile on, I, I, that, that is one of my fears for all publishers today that they're letting, they're letting data guide their actions and not their brand. So as an example, like you said, you know, if, if you're allowing some of those questionable ads from say outbrain to appear at the bottom of one of your articles, the reason you do that is because the data says that it's more successful than other things that you're you're surrounding your content with. So you're going to make more revenue from that. And I understand that, but I just think it's a bad choice. I I, I was on the New York Times the other day and a pop-up appeared um, to for me to subscribe. And I'm already a subscriber. So I, I went to click it to close it and it jumped across the page. And so I went to click it again and it, it jumped oh, across yeah. the page again. So I, I, I turned on my video capture software on my laptop so I could watch this. I could So I could write a blog post about this. But but I'm sure if you ask somebody, you know, that's in charge of revenue at the New York Times, they would say, well, you know, that module generates more revenue than other things that we're doing. But it's a mistake. You just, you know, brand has to come first, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, so just, I mean, because looking at, um, just thinking about your, your example, yeah, I mean, I just looked at, at Forbes as well and, and saw, you know, an article, it, it's a contributed article, I should, I should say, um, but it's about, you know, Obamacare premiums and, and sort of what, yes. yeah, yeah, and then you just scroll down at the end of it and it's, um, you won't believe what these fitness models do to burn quick fat, and yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it, it's. I mean, I suppose they're all healthcare related, and maybe and that's <laughs> yeah, why. I it, yeah, yeah. So you're in that healthcare yeah. mindset, but I mean, reading about you know what the what the impact on premiums will be for health insurance for 2016 is diff, It's not the same thing as learn, wanting to learn about what fitness models do to burn fat. But no, it's not. <laughs> and you're not going to see that in brand voice, right? Yeah, yeah. No, actually, and and, and I mean, this is like an area that. You've given me some ideas in terms of some editorial to, to look at because um, I think this is something that's worth exploring further. Good. I'm glad. Well, Joe, you know you know how much I, I love chatting with you, so it's always a pleasure to have you on. And as 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 um, the Wonder Factory continues to grow, um, I'm sure we'll 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 be chatting much more often. Arthi, thanks. I really enjoyed this. So thank you very much. Thanks. All right. All right. Well, that, that was our that was our podcast um, on on the future. And um, thanks to both of our guests, Scott Snyder and and Joe McCambly. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers for DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.